Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I guess we've been lucky. I guess we're going to talk about the weather again like we always do, but um, we don't have any (laughs) flooding over here, and I hear that you guys don't have any water over there. No, still not. It's so funny. So I am, as you know, moving um, to Virginia near Washington, D.C., and leaving beautiful California, and all the people here who I tell I'm moving either go oh, God, it'll be so hot, or it snows there. And I'm like, yes, they have seasons. But then you can tell them you can flush a toilet as much as you want. You can take (laughs) showers as long as you want. We should still conserve water in D.C., I'm sure. (laughs) Maybe, but I can tell you here, you don't need to conserve water. There's water everywhere. Careful, you're going to get a nasty email from somebody who wants to be more environmentally conscious. (laughs) True. All right, well, today we're going to talk about birth control. And uh, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Clinical Protocol Number 13, um, which is titled, uh, titled Contraception During Breastfeeding, which was revised just this year and published in the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal, Volume 10, Number 1, so the first issue of this year. Right. And this was um, primarily by Pamela um, Behrens and Miriam Labach and the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And um, it can be found on the Academy's webpage at bfmed.org. There's a little protocol bar on the left. And um, I was really excited to see this new um, revision of this protocol because I had not um, read the protocol cover to cover previously. And it covers some important and complicated issues. Um, The protocol is meant to help breastfeeding mothers to select contraceptive methods that are effective, that are unlikely to disrupt lactation, and to be satisfactory for her and her partner, and of course to help medical providers and assisting mothers with this. It covers contraceptive methods during breastfeeding and provides guidance on the lactational amenorrhea method, um, which I will sometimes call LAM for short. Right. And I think the other thing that's nice about this protocol is that it clears up um, some of the confusion that people have because people in lactation, like you and me, we know that there are negative effects um, when we give um, certain types of birth control to women when they're breastfeeding. We notice a lowering of their milk supply. But when you look at the World Health Organization and the, particularly the Center for Disease Control Guidelines, they rely just on studies, which we know are, which we'll talk about throughout the theme of this today, that the studies are, are not very good in terms of being able to clearly show that these hormones are safe during nursing. And so there's more of a comfort in using hormones if you go by the CDC guidelines. 
so that you'll have some physicians going by those guidelines saying, yeah, we can give Depo at six weeks or we can give the birth control pill at six weeks and it's fine. Whereas the lactation consultants might, you know, go, don't do that. <laughs> and then there's this, you know, clearly butting of the head situation and patients get caught in the middle. Yeah, so I think, I think yeah. it's been really tough because mm. the studies have been lacking. There just aren't very many. And a lot of them um, are noted to be of poor quality or they're just a lot of um, confounding factors. And when you when we talk a little bit about the physiology of lactation, it helps us to understand why people who work in this field have concerns. Right, right. Great. Okay, so um, I'm not going to talk about every single study that was mentioned in the protocol, and I really encourage people to to read it um, because I think it um, does offer a lot, and there are some great charts in it that are worth looking at, but we're going we're gonna to touch on some interesting points. It starts off by making the point that contraception should be discussed during prenatal and postpartum visits, um, as well as at um, pediatricians' visits for the infant. Um, and I, I have to say, I find this to be really important when I'm seeing babies, you know, when they're two weeks old or they're two months old or, you know, on up. We really talk about birth control at every well check, um, in, at least in the first year. It touches on a lot of considerations that affect women's contraceptive choice and advantages and disadvantages of available options. And um, just so people know, Table 1 provides useful information for counseling breastfeeding mothers, including um, potential for hormonal methods to disrupt milk synthesis and um, talks about exposing infants to synthetic hormones as well. So I want to start out by reminding um, everyone that a falling progesterone level after birth is necessary for the onset of milk production. And thus, um, there are concerns about initiating hormonal contraception before lactation is established. We're going to start off and talk about um, the lactational amenorrhea method in the early postpartum period before um, other methods are used. And I think for me, reading this paper was really, really interesting because I've been a doctor for less than 10 years, and um, this method, although I had learned about it briefly, I hadn't learned about where it came from, and it grew out of data that was published in the 1970s showing that women were less likely to ovulate in the early postpartum period if they were breastfeeding. Um, and further research showed that this method can be effective based on three criteria, which define the period of lowest pregnancy risk. Um, the first one is no menstrual bleeding for greater than two days of duration, not counting any bleeding that happens in the first two months postpartum. Number two is full or nearly full breastfeeding. And number three is a baby less than six months old. And the nearly full or full breastfeeding, I thought that was a little bit... Um you know, a little bit ambiguous. And so my understanding is that the woman is constantly nursing and not skipping any breastfeeds. And if she tops off the baby, let's say in the evening with some formula or something else, it's after she's nursed the normal number of times that she normally would be nursing. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. I think that I think more in this setting about what the I don't know if there's a better way to put this, but what the breasts experience of breastfeeding is rather than the baby's experience. And so the idea is that mom is going um, very few hours between emptying her breasts. And then there are some further studies that show that um, really 
as you get on to to older infants, they're one of the things I used to always say is that there probably shouldn't be any breaks of longer than five hours at night because some babies, even from a very young age, will sleep longer than that. And the studies have been done with this, um, some in particular, with no longer than four hours between breastfeeding during the day and no longer than six hours between breastfeeding at night. Yeah, and they don't actually say that. Like, they don't define a period of time such that if the baby's sleeping, you know, six or eight hours and mom's not nursing all night, that, um, that you know, that would disqualify. But I think they're relying on her getting her menses back. And if she gets her menses back, clearly she broke through um, right. her prolactin level. And So those and, numbers that I just cited were actually not from the original studies, but they were from two studies that were done later for um, to investigate whether or not this method would be useful um, beyond the baby's sixth month of life. And so one study was in Rwanda studying up to nine months of age and the other in Pakistan up to a year. And what I found was really interesting was they both found continued high efficacy of this method provided the mother continued to breastfeed at her same frequency. um, And that if when she, because after six months, people are giving complimentary foods, they did that after the baby was at the breast. Oh, oh, that the baby fed first. Right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and studies, the ones before this that were um, done in babies up to six months, consistently have found a pregnancy rate of 2%. So 98% effect, effective if all three criteria are met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, and then, yeah, and I was going to mention, I think you, maybe you'll mention this later, but if you add the natural family planning that we'll talk about, then it seems to go down a little bit too, more to 1%. Sure. And, and I think the other comment that I thought was really important with this is if a mother um, is not meeting any of those three criteria anymore, then her chance of pregnancy is increased and she should be advised to initiate another form of contraception. But the clinician should always be thinking ahead because mom needs to have chosen that next method of contraception before that day when she gets her period because there's likely going to be a lapse of weeks or months between when she gets her period and when she next sees her clinician to talk about her birth control choice. So it makes sense to talk about it beforehand. I always joke with my patients that, you know, in the first few weeks postpartum, they're told not to um, engage in sexual activity. And then, you know, eventually they're allowed to, but they're still too tired. And when the baby finally does sleep for more than five hours and they wake up with energy, they don't think, oh, what contraception contraceptive should I use? They think, hi, I remember you. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, so I find, you know, in my practice, um, that I cannot find a family that's willing to do the lactation amen review method. They just don't feel secure with it unless they're comfortable with the possibility of becoming pregnant at that interval. Um, if they say, you know, I'm 36, I want to have another kid soon. I'm not going to use birth control. We'll see what happens. Um, that's one thing is that I don't think that many Americans have bought into lactation amenorrhea method. And maybe that's because we haven't, um, you know, talked about it enough. They don't really, you know, I think most women, I think most families don't even know about it. Um, also, if I told someone that, that there's a 2% risk of pregnancy, 
and the family wants zero percent they're not going to do it you know yeah absolutely that was me i was not going two percent was not okay for me exactly yeah exactly it's not and then the third issue is that um i feel like the nutritional status of women in the united states is very different than it is um in among women who took part in these studies in other countries back in the back in the 70s through the 90s and so and i don't really i don't feel that we have very contemporary studies with women who have high bmis who are very well nourished because I, I i feel that i see a lot of women who do get their menses back before six months and they're fully nursing. They're nursing constantly and they're getting their periods back before six months. So nutritional status in women needs to be um, evaluated as well. <clears throat> and then many yeah. women take many women take things like Shadavari and Gotru, which both can enhance fertility. Even though they are helpful for low milk supply, it's kind of paradoxical, but they do enhance fertility. And so there's that risk as well. So I think we have to be careful with you know, the lactation amenorrhea method, I think the big thing in my mind, and we'll talk about the um, mini pill, which is the progesterone only pill. But if you add that to fully nursing, women don't need to really worry about the mini pill in in and of itself being not the combined birth control pill. You know, we're, we always think of the combined birth control pill is your gold standard for birth control. You're not going to get pregnant if you take it properly. The mini pill is a higher risk of pregnancy, but if you combine that with lactation amenorrhea method and you're just nursing the first six months and you take the mini pill, that's pretty hard to get pregnant doing the two things. So that can be reassuring for women. It is. And then a final um, thing that I learned reading this um, protocol was that, you know, these studies that were done evaluating the effectiveness of LAM were not um, with hand expressing milk or pumping. And so those have not really been evaluated. Women who are expressing more than a few times a week should be counseled that um, this may not be as effective. We really just don't have any data on it. Right. Yeah. Because their prolactin levels are not, are not necessarily going to be as high, which you know, I see all the time with women who are just pumping for their preemie or they're going back to work and then they are just pumping and their supply goes down. And mm-hmm. so basically the, the lactation amenorrhea method is not um, considered valid for anyone who's working out, who's separated from their infant right. and working outside the home. So those moms need to be advised to um, initiate an additional contraceptive method. Yeah, if they want that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, then the paper goes on to um, talk about natural family planning, and I did I didn't learn in medical school that there are four different methods of fertility awareness, which together are frequently called natural family planning. They rely on observation of things like cervical mucus, body temperature, or other hormonal monitoring, and they require significant periods of abstinence um, when a woman realizes that it's around the time of ovulation. And these are um, discussed in more detail in the paper. Yeah, it would seem to me that the that the natural family planning method has to be a little bit tough when you're when you're nursing the first six months because it's hard to you know, it's hard to see any kind of ovulatory pattern because you shouldn't be ovulating if you're unless you're yes. working. Yeah. And 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 the paper does mention that the um pregnancy rates were elevated among breastfeeders after menses returned who were using um, this method as opposed to women who were not lactating who were using this method. It was about 36% as opposed to 13%. 
and this did not appear to be due to differences in their use of the method. They just had increased risk. Yeah, they probably couldn't track their ovulation. Yeah, very they're probably exhausted. And they're probably, it's probably irregular. You know, yes. the ovulation's irregular because they're nursing. Yeah. Yeah, that probably is true. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and, you know, I think what's really brought home to me by this is different people have, like, I was not comfortable with 2%. There are people who are like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not really trying to get pregnant right now, but if it does happen, that's okay. And they may choose these methods with lower efficacy, I think it's just really important to be able to help moms understand what the differences are. Right, exactly. So then um, we go into hormonal contraceptive methods, and um, there are quite a few different ones. There is controversy um, in the literature regarding hormonal contraceptive effects on milk supply, and that's because while um, some study, one study reported an increase in milk supply. Another showed a, showed a decline in milk supply with progestin-only contraception versus placebo. And a bunch of different studies have found no effect. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the different um, forms. But essentially, the evidence is inadequate to make really um, evidence-based recommendations reco- regarding Um, hormonal contraceptive use for lactating women and thus we fall back a lot of times on knowing the effect of estrogen on milk supply and the importance of allowing progesterone to drop in the initiation of lactation and those sorts of things. Right, exactly. Um, And I would say that the authors note that hormonal methods should be discouraged in situations where the milk supply is already borderline could be difficult to establish, like when the baby is in the NICU or when greater milk supply may be needed, like with multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, for you know reasons we've already alluded to, estrogen-containing combined hormonal contraceptive options are not ideal for early postpartum breastfeeding mothers um, because of this potential adverse impact on milk supply. And the fact that I mentioned about the um, importance of progesterone dropping um, leads me in to talk about the progestin-containing contraceptives. So the mini pill, which you had mentioned, there are also implants like the Implanon or the Nexplanon, um, the Depo-Provera injection, which is given every three months, or the Mirena intrauterine system. And I think that there's been a lot of controversy around using these and also in the timing of using these. Right. So I think, I don't know, do you want to talk a little bit now about the progestin? Yeah, let's talk about, um, let's talk about, there's a couple of different ways talking about this. We can talk about the um, progesterone only um, methods. Let's talk about that first. Okay, sounds good. So um, essentially there is... The, the methods in general are very effective. And so I think that a lot of people use these. Um, it varies a lot by country. So, for instance, the um, Mirena IUD, which is used in the single digits in the United States, is used in 80% of women in some countries, um, can be very, very effective. And I think that compared to, in my practice, when I'm talking to people about hormonal methods, using progestin only contraceptives compared to using a combination oral contraceptive pill 
um, I consider it to be less likely to have a negative impact on milk supply. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. But the timing of the progesterone is the issue. Absolutely. Um, That being said, there um, have been, there was a direct comparison of progestin-only pills and combined oral contraceptives that didn't show a very big impact um, or a very big difference between the two on, on milk supply. And so I think this really highlights the difficulty in doing these types of studies. You know, some of the studies they'll say, oh, this many women discontinued the pills because they thought they had an impact on their supply or this many women stopped breastfeeding in this group versus the other, or they'll even um, try to estimate the amount of milk transferred using, um, the nuclear deuterium, tape. yeah, the, yeah, the heavy water, um, yeah. which is really fascinating that yeah. somebody has gone to all this effort to do these. But despite doing all of that, we don't necessarily have a really good answer. Right, right. Well, and I think sometimes it's how it's how this is measured because I think that the studies showing the amount of milk that the infant takes, that's probably a pretty good way to measure, um, um, you know, the effect of the of the hormone on milk supply. But on the other hand, if a woman had a high supply and then it dropped considerably um, from the hormone method, the baby still may be able to take enough milk, but her supply may have dropped quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly true. I see that a lot with women who have a high supply and they get a double shot or the birth control pill with estrogen. They drop their supply, but they oftentimes can can remain fairly well matched. Yeah. And and there are some people who would probably do well with um, a lot of obstacles. And there are those women who we meet who, even with a great deal of support, always struggle with supply. So what's going to happen to an individual patient can be difficult to predict. Right. But I think in general, um, the World Health Organization and then Center for Disease Control agree that the mini pill is certainly acceptable and safe for mothers who are... um, who are six weeks postpartum. I, yeah, absolutely right. agree with that. The problem is the injectable, the injectables are, and the, well, they say the same thing for the injectables as well, um, that they're safe after six weeks, which I think many of us in lactation would really question whether or not in a, a shot of Depo-Provera would really be safe for milk supply after six weeks, because I think many of us see a drop. Yeah, and I think that the feeling that I have is that it hasn't been well studied in that the big study um, that said there's no difference was done in mixed feeding um, dyads. And so it wasn't with exclusively breastfeeding moms. And so I think it's harder to tease out um, what the effect was in that study. Also, another study... Um, of low-income mothers who were given the um, injectable found that 60% of those who were given it were given it prior to hospital discharge. And so I think that particularly in low-income mothers, this is very frequently given in the hospital because of providers' anxiety that there's going to be um, very closely spaced pregnancies. Right. And so if we actually look at the recommendations from the World Health Organization, they actually say do not use injectable, um, well, I take that back. They say they they level it a number three out of four. So they rate these contraceptive methods 
one through four, one means absolutely go ahead and do it. Number two is it's probably fine, not don't worry so much about it. Number three is, well, I guess you can do it, but there's a lot of negatives. And four is don't do it. And so they actually give um, the um, something like depo, they label it a three, meaning uh, there's some definite risk, but you might have to do it um, for between um, birth and six weeks. Whereas the Center for Disease Control says under a month, they give it a number two, like it's probably okay. And I think that's the, that's the crux of one of the issues that we have is depo being given under six weeks. Is that really safe or not? And like you said, there aren't good studies, and we know physiologically that we need to let that progesterone drop to bring the milk in. So I think the problem here is that we don't really, that a lot of the providers who are giving that depo under six weeks don't understand the importance of, of doing informed consent with mothers to explain to them, look, you know, you have a risk of a drop in milk supply. And that's with these ratings of three from World Health Organization and two from CDC, you know, that's saying to, those ratings are saying to the providers, look, you know, there's, there's, there's a but in giving that. There's, we're saying to you, look, it's okay, but, or it's maybe okay, but, and then that but never gets shared. I absolutely agree. I think people just are very paternalistic going from room to room, giving everybody a shot and, and not really discussing the, the risks and the alternatives. Right. But on the other hand, this information from the World Health Organization and from the CDC, well, the World Health Organization isn't as guilty about this as the CDC, doesn't really emphasize this enough to providers when they look at the chart. And Mm -hmm. so um, they don't even really consider that the issue um, very much for mothers. And so we haven't, we really need better studies to be able to say with determination, this is not a good idea. Yeah. Um, I want to mention about the IUD, though, because it's becoming um, more acceptable to insert um, a progesterone IUD or a copper IUD immediately postpartum, Mm -hmm. right after the placenta is delivered. And I think many people are hoping that by putting that IUD in right away, like the Marina IUD, they don't have to worry about the negative effects of giving Depo on milk supply that is such a small amount of progesterone. So um, they do mention that there was one study done on that, and that was um, done in Pittsburgh in 2000, published in 2011 um, in, the, in the journal Contraception, and the authors were Chen, Reeves, Kreinen, and Schwartz. And so what they did is they recruited women who were interested in, in a progesterone IUD after birth, and they randomized them to um, IUD insertion either immediately postpartum or at six to eight weeks. So they, so women had to agree to just be randomized. So 50 received it postpartum and 46 received it at six to eight weeks. But what's interesting about the study is that they had really low initiation rates. Um, only 64% of the mothers who received it postpartum initiated breastfeeding. And only, wow. Yeah, and only 58% of mothers who received it later initiated breastfeeding. So these were not like super highly motivated women. But on the other hand, when they look at the demographics, like 60 plus percent of these mothers were more than were college educated or beyond. So that was an interesting. Hmm. I didn't think I didn't, that, that was surprising. Um, and so um, the bottom line in the study is that the women who received it at six to eight weeks breastfed longer than those who received it immediately postpartum. And you saw them really drop off over time more and more. So um, so for both groups, um, 
the number of women who were breastfeeding really declined a lot by three months. So for those who were given the IUD later, 28% were nursing at three months, and um, only 20% of mothers were exclusively nursing. And for the ones who got the IUD right away, 14% of those were nursing at three months, and only one of the moms, which is 2%, was exclusively breastfeeding. And then at six months... Um, the mothers who got the IUD at six to eight weeks were still nurse, were like only 23% were still nursing at all. And only 6% of the women who got the IUD postpartum um, were still nursing. Um, so one of the problems with the study is that it, they didn't ask the women about their milk supply or how much supplementation they were giving. They just said, are you nursing or are you not nursing, period. When did mm-hmm. you stop nursing? And that's the problem with a lot of these studies. And, you know, this was done in 2011. And by then, you know, we had... Miriam Malak's um, uh, studies on, or recommendations on defining breastfeeding. How to do a good study that involves breastfeeding. Right. And I wonder if this design was patterned after some of these really old studies where it was the same sort of thing, like, are you breastfeeding or not breastfeeding? And not really getting the lowdown on exactly what the issue is. Um, So I, so... Yeah, especially when you get that far out, I think, you know, there's, it's important and significant to know, like, what percentages of those women are still staying home and what percent have gone back to work. And because that affects, you know, other reasons why they would have had lower rates. Right. And if, and if you do the same sort of study back in the 90s and you say, okay, you're still nursing, well, 28% at six months, okay, maybe that was really good. And, and then women who didn't have any hormonal intervention, which that's all they were nursing as well, because we had lousy support back then. Yeah. So then you're comparing, you know, women who, you know, maybe they would have had better intention, you know, who knows? So, yeah, this whole thing needs to be done, basically. In Oregon, where there are really good rates and good support. So, you know, so the bottom line is that from this one study, it does appear that having the IUD put in immediately postpartum has a much bigger impact on, on duration of nursing. We don't know why. Maybe it's lower milk supply. We don't know why. But um, otherwise, the groups were pretty similar in terms of demographics. So I would say that jumping onto this bandwagon of just assuming, well, it's a lower amount of progesterone, women are going to do fine. You know, you're putting the progesterone right back where you got it, basically. So to me, I don't, that does not seem to be a good idea based on this one study at this point. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of future research potential. Absolutely. so when I went on to, to read about estrogen-containing combined hormonal options, I was reminded that there are a lot of them. There are, of course, the com- combination oral contraceptive pills, the transdermal patch, com- or combined contraceptive vaginal rings. Um, and these are not ideal for early postpartum breastfeeding, particularly because of potential adverse impact on supply. And I think it's worth reminding... Um, people who don't remember this, that we know this is um, able to cause milk suppression because historically large doses of estrogen immediately postpartum were used for lactation suppression prior to our understanding of the elevated um, thrombogenic risk during that period. Right. When I was in my training in the 1980s, we were given, you know, standard orders for women postpartum and every woman for almost, because hardly anyone nursed back then, 
we checked off whether or not they were whether or not we were going to choose estrogen, hydrochlorothiazide, um, testosterone shot, or bromocryptine, which is which at the point we used to call parlidol. Um, which one do you want to give the woman for drying up her milk? Period. It's unbelievable yeah. now, yes. and and it's fascinating to hear you say that because I, when I was a medical student, remember like going and seeing a mom and her mom would be there and I would be like, Oh, well, did you breastfeed? She's like, no, they gave me the shot. And I didn't even know what she was talking about. (laughs) Right. That's, that's the history of that. I was like, what shot did they give her? And I didn't really make the connection at that time that it was because, well, one, we were trying to encourage breastfeeding, but also it was really dangerous to be giving high doses of estrogen at that time. Oh yeah. We used to watch people. I mean, we, there were several cases of women who just, you know, fell over dead, you know, from a huge PE, you know, at postpartum, they'd be walking on the postpartum and they're dead, you know, not pregnancy identi- is dangerous enough without us doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then I trained among an, with an Amish, Amish population and they would see us coming and saying, um, you know, with a nurse saying, well, we're going to give you this medicine for, to drive your milk. And they would put their hands up and say, I'm breastfeeding. And then the whole, so then that woman is treated differently and um, no one acknowledge, no one talks about the feeding. No one helps the woman feed. They, she just says, I'm breastfeeding. And suddenly she ends up in a different category of like, okay, she has something special going on. We're not going to do routine things for her. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I mean, my experience also with um, this in my personal practice is that occasionally we give um, estrogen containing pills to women who have really significant oversupply to try, to try to bring their supply down. Um, I don't find thankfully many of my patients being given, um, many of my breastfeeding patients being given, um, combination oral, um, pills by their OBGYNs sort of like, you know, they're not thinking about whether or not they're breastfeeding, I don't find that to be the case um, in my practice. I think usually um, when I talk to women at their postpartum visit or their it's their well visits and I'm like, oh, what are you planning? They'll say, oh, I got a prescription from a pill from my OB. I still always check and look and say like, oh, have you filled it? What's the prescription? Just to make sure. But I think that um, in general, people are giving the so-called mini pill. Um, because they're aware of that issue. I think it's regional um, in our, because we have an OBGYN training program, but they're very aware of um, most recent guidelines. And so the most recent guideline by the Center for Disease Control um, for combined oral contraception is under a month, it's a three. So it's not a four. <laughs> it's a three, meaning, wow. well, you can give it, but just be careful. And yeah. then after a month, it's a two, meaning it's probably fine just be, you know, aware of possibly a decrease in milk supply. Whereas, I find that shocking. Yes. And that, and so I've been seeing more um, combined oral contraception being given to mothers at the six-week mark because they're being told, oh, studies show it's fine. Wow. And they're not told, this could drop my milk supply. And so they're trusting their OBs. And so I'm seeing this in my lactation clinic where patients are saying, well, I never knew that, and I'm so upset that no one told me this. That's fascinating. Whereas the World Health Organization states that between zero and six weeks, it's a level four, like don't give it. And then between six weeks and six months, it's, it's it's a level three, like not a good idea, 
you know, if you have to give it. And then after six months, it's a two. So they wait until six months. This, um, to me, sort of makes me think back to the the need for better um, education in pharmacy schools. Like, I think, you know, you'll be told that you need to stop breastfeeding for your z pack that you're taking, but nobody will mention to you that this thing that could totally ruin your breastfeeding is a possible problem. Right. Well, I think, I wish that the World Health Organization information was distributed rather than the Center for Disease Control Information. And I think it's really sad that they differ so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, personally, I use the birth control pill with estrogen for women with a high supply. And I think it works really well at any time during lactation, whether the mother is six weeks, 12 weeks, nine months, or even two years postpartum, giving the birth control pill with estrogen drops the supply. Just like when a woman becomes pregnant, it drops her supply. You know, that's mm-hmm. when... So, I mean, it just makes, you know, it's kind of funny because here we're stumbling over these studies, yet it just makes physiologic sense with all of this, you know, in terms of, you know, the placenta delivery, dropping the progesterone level, and then having a woman become pregnant, her estrogen goes up, and lo and behold, her milk supply drops. It all, mm-hmm. it all is this natural. It just makes sense. We understand that physiologically. But then when you talk about interrupting that natural process with giving hormones, suddenly it's like, oh, we have to study that to prove that that's the case. And, <laughs> you know, so, sure. I, you know, it's just, it's frustrating because I think a lot of women don't have, you know, they suffer from it. So. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the more complicated areas to me about, uh, I think endocrinology in general is sort of complicated. I think a lot of people after they've left their medical training sort of forget some of those pathways <laughs> that they've learned. And so if this isn't something they deal with all the time, they may not really have that in the forefront of their brain of how those different things you just described work. Right. Well, and I think that the whole physiology of lactation is not quite understood. You know, the re- like the reason why the milk comes in is because of the drop in the placenta. I don't know if I would have known that had I, you know, had I not been a lactation consultant. As a family doctor, I don't know if I would have even thought about it. Oh, I remember learning about it in medical school, but, you know, some people probably weren't paying attention that day. Um, <laughs> so I'm not saying that you were one of them. Um, emergency contraception, just to change the subject, is touched on in here. And, um, you know, interestingly, also, there are a lot of choices. And so you can have um, post postcoital copper IUD placement, um, uh, combined oral contraceptive, progesterone, only options or mifepristone am i saying that correctly mm-hmm. yeah um which i you know that is not something that i've ever done um i've only ever used the combined or progesterone only options and really this was very interesting to me because the um IUD placement being copper is unlikely to impact lactation and it has an advantage of providing, you know, long lasting contraception. The progesterone options are slightly more effective than the combined estrogen progestin options. And they're also less likely to cause um, nausea and vomiting, which can be very significant for some women who are looking for emergency contraception. Yeah. It's really not fair to make them vomit no. <laughs> after they've had sex. <laughs> it's not right. Yeah, this... no, yeah. I mostly use the progesterone emergency yeah. contraception. That's safer with nursing. Absolutely, and I think that you know, interestingly, in here it mentions that um, this method, um, 
emergency contraception has been evaluated as a backup to the lactational amenorrhea method. And although, you know, this isn't necessarily something that we want to be encouraging women to do frequently, I think that sort of that thing that I alluded to earlier of people aren't always thinking ahead about when they are no longer going to be meeting all the criteria for the lactational amenorrhea method, um, having a prescription on hand um, before you need it is really important. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to mention one other thing about the copper IUD mm-hmm. and about insertion of IUDs. And the recommendation from the World Health Organization and the CDC is that the copper IUD is safe to put in immediately postpartum. But once you get towards, well, the World Health Organization says once you wait 48 hours um, into the fourth week from day two through the fourth week, you have a higher rate of uterine um, perfor- uh, perforation. Um, and the CDC says something similar, like if you wait more than after more than 10 minutes after placental delivery until four weeks, um, you have a higher risk of um, perforation. Um, but putting that in immediately postpartum is probably going to be, a, that's going to be the ticket really to not inhibit lactation and mm-hmm. safe long-term. And they can leave it in for like, you know, 12, 15 years if they don't want to have another baby. So that's what I'm, you know, advocating for is the copper IUD. And I think, you know, the, the downside is that in theory it can cause more, um, irregular bleeding. Um, it's more, the... yeah, more cramps and okay. heavier bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this really goes back to the beginning when it's, you know, what is going to work for that mom and her partner? Because if you're not going to stick with the method, then there's no point in in handing out that prescription. I mean, you know, a lot of the moms are like, yeah, I have this prescription. I haven't filled it. I'm like, okay, well, you know how these this baby that you're holding got here, right? Let's, right. <laughs> um, especially in my younger patients. And as an aside, um, these longer-lasting um, birth control methods are – becoming more and more recommended as um, choices for teenagers um, to be effective, long-lasting methods for them. Yes, there's a new progesterone IUD called the Skyla that's uh, a little smaller for um, teenagers who haven't had babies yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been seeing a lot of those being put in. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so we can talk just very briefly about barrier methods. The you know condoms, for example, um, also diaphragm are there are no known adverse effects on lactation, but patients should be counseled that they have reduced efficacy compared to other hormonal, intrauterine, or permanent options. Yeah, the diaphragm is a little bit tricky because women have to get refitted after they have a baby. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, so I come from a generation of lots of diaphragm users. Mm-hmm. And um, we, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of fittings. I mean, that was one of the best methods years ago. And you have to be fed every time you have a baby. Or if you lose or gain 10 pounds, you have to be refitted for your diaphragm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a method that I would really prefer. Right. Yeah. I think I'm actually on earth because my mother didn't use it properly. She said, oh yeah, I have that, I have that diaphragm, but yeah, like I didn't really, yeah, that's how that happened. So. Um, and 
then finally the irreversible options um, sterilization are discussed um, including male vasectomy um, postpartum tubal ligation, laparoscopic tubal ligation, and hysteroscopic tubal occlusion. Um, and these procedures involve different technologies, surgical techniques, anesthesia, and procedural settings. And I think that um, an important consideration for breastfeeding has to do with the potential impact of early maternal infant separation. Um, and also this is related to a problem that we have in many hospitals in this country where there's um, inadequate education of providers about um, the safety of nursing after moms are given anesthesia. Right. So I'll see a mom who, you know, she's going for her tubal and then she's told she can't breastfeed for 24 hours because she was given anesthesia. Um, Whereas we know with the inhaled anesthetics, as soon as the mom is awake and alert enough to um, safely hold and nurse her baby, it is safe for her for the baby to have the milk, which is so funny because you know when women wake up if they have general for their C section they wake up and they nurse. Yeah, so it's the same thing, you know. But I, everyone I, knows that that's okay, but then after other procedures they don't know it's okay. So yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. All right, I think we um, I think we finished that one pretty well. We crushed it. Yeah, we crushed it. Um, I'll put a link on our Facebook page for that protocol so people can find it. All right, Karen. Well, take care and have a and good luck with your move um, out east. Thanks. And we'll be in touch soon. Sounds good. Bye. Okay, bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy f as in frank med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.